Hello there and welcome to the final part of this six-part series on pyrotheology where basically I am attempting to uh, take the work that I've been doing over the last 25 years and kind of put it into a succinct form and kind of put it into a systematic form and uh, you know that's always difficult to do um, and probably what I'll end up doing is maybe once a year doing this type of course. It's very, very helpful for me as I try to kind of work through what it is that, um, well, what it is I think is happening within religion, what it is uh, that's happening within the world, the word salvation. Um, I think that, so when I was 17 and I got involved in confessional religion for a few years <clears throat> through kind of like a, having no background in it, and then I entered into this fresh world of, uh, different terminology, a different way of looking at the world. And to be honest, it was wonderful. I flourished in it. Uh, I had never really thought about anything very seriously before. Um, I wasn't a deep thinker. Um, I was very much just living day to day. And the first time that I started to ask big questions was connected to this evangelical church. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. And um, I was given all of these words in this language that was new and alien and weird and I started to try and find my way around it and in some respects that's what I've been doing all along um, you know a word like salvation uh, it's a word that is used within religion um, but when we actually want to try to pin it down and go like what do we mean by this word what does it mean or by terms like original sin uh, or terms like um uh, you know, atonement or like there's all these these terms that I actually think have something really interesting and important to say uh, if we can kind of strip them away, strip the religious baggage away to some extent. Uh, this is what a theologian uh, Bultmann was doing. He called it a demythologizing, where he would try and find the existential import <clears throat> within these kind of words that are religious. He, he thought that there was something of uh, contemporary and universal significance to the terms and uh, Bonhoeffer was doing something similar in fact Bonhoeffer's critique of, of um, Bultmann was that Bultmann didn't demythologize enough that we had to even demythologize words like God so in letters and papers from prison you you see kind of Bonhoeffer as this confessional Christian uh, critiquing Bultmann for the opposite reason that most theologians critiqued him. Most theologians thought that Bultmann went too far with this notion of demythologizing. Uh, uh, and then Bonhoeffer comes in and says, no, no, no. It's like Bultmann was onto something, but he wasn't, he didn't go as far as he could. So anyway, <clears throat> in, in, a, in many ways, paratheology in this project has been attempting to make sense of uh, what we mean by salvation. And connecting that with what we call the cure in psychoanalysis or what we call absolute knowledge in philosophy and um yeah so that's what this you know six week uh, six part uh seminar is is trying to kind of delve into and understand um so far on the journey i'll just kind of briefly say a few things uh you'll notice that con continually i hope you're getting bored of it by now actually is continually we're we're hitting on this dialectic method where the more we seek completeness, the more incomplete we feel. And then when we embrace our incompleteness, we find ourselves somehow complete within that incompleteness. 
or the more that we try to find success, the more we find failure. But when we embrace failure in that wholehearted embrace, there's a type of success. Uh, when we try to find our lives, we lose them. When we lose our lives and embrace the loss, we find them. So in different ways, that, that dialectic has been, I think, there throughout all of these seminars um, where you kind of choose the wrong path. Uh, you always choose the narrow path, never the wide path, right? If you've got a choice between darkness and light, you embrace the darkness so that you find the light. Because if you embrace the light, weirdly you find darkness. Just like if you try to embrace happiness, you end up kind of always pursuing it and feeling unhappy. But if somehow you forget about happiness and embrace a vocation, then you find that you get back the very thing that you lost. This gets us to the heart of the word faith, and that's going to be probably what I hang this last seminar on, an attempt to give a provisional definition of the word faith. Um, I'm going to use Kierkegaard in order, to do, in order to do that. But this has been the dialectic journey. And actually, just as an aside, but I was thinking about this this morning because somebody on Twitter was uh, including me in a discussion about how science and religion interact, right? So this is a, a question that you often hear is how are science and religion connected? So on one side, you have people um, who think they're very intimately connected. And often people are like creation scientists or something like that who want to argue that the scientific endeavor can actually prove or at least lend probability to religious claims. And then on the other side, people often say, well, no, these are two different um, disciplines that are looking at two different subjects. Uh, they don't overlap. Uh, for Hegel, uh, these, neither of these would do. Uh, for Hegel, definitely you cannot separate the two. So for Hegel, everything's interconnected. And uh, even if it's interconnected through lack, right? Um, so Hegel would never want to separate science and religion. But what Hegel does in his book, Phenomenology of Spirit, is he kind of shows that he, he's almost giving a definition of what the scientific method is, the most basic definition you can get. And the most basic definition, a basic as in the, the kind of getting to the lowest level, um, not like basic as in easy to understand because it's quite hard to understand, but is that science is the systematic uh, movement into contradiction. It's the movement where you encounter some sort of conflict and as you resolve it you enter into deeper contradictions and conflicts and as you resolve them you go deeper and science in a, in a way is this movement and that movement creates a body of knowledge. Um, and then of course Hegel says and that's what religion is. Religion kind of is this dialectic method as well. So they're not separate, they're actually at their base doing something similar. And for Hegel, science comes to its maturity whenever it realizes that it can never overcome the contradiction that drives it, but it can implement it, it can bring it into itself. Um, and then, of course, he sees this also going on within religion, and he thinks that within Christianity, we see a version of that as well. So for Hegel, there's not a distinction between the two. Uh, but they're also not kind of like um, 
kind of uh, it's not some sort of uh, argument for creation science or something like that it's more an argument that they both at their core manifest a similar movement a similar kind of like a, a spiraling forward <clears throat> okay so today I want to look at the last part of the coin and the last part of the coin is a phrase in Latin that's at the bottom. You probably can't see it, but I'll just hold the coin there. It says, absurdo confido. And I, I was looking for, whenever I came up with that term, um, I was kind of, I was designing a little logo for parotheology when my friend uh, Clark Orr was designing it, but I was talking with him about what I wanted in it. And... Um, you know, partly kind of jokingly at first, I was like, oh, a Latin saying would be cool. Because if you have a coat of arms, you have Latin sayings. And I thought, okay, I wonder if there's a, if there's a phrase that captures kind of what parotheology is doing that could be put into Latin. And then I thought of the very famous Latin phrase, um, credo quia absurdum, right? Which can be translated, I believe because it is absurd. So this phrase, uh, credo quia absurdum, is uh, associated with the work of Tertullian in the second century. So Tertullian is one of the first kind of Christian writers, and um, he writes this phrase. Now, it's actually not his phrase, so it kind of comes from his work, but it's a mistranslation. Uh, it takes on a life of its own. Uh, Tertullian wrote, basically, he wrote... Um, I believe that the Son of God died. Um, it is credible because it is unfitting. I believe that he died and rose again. I am certain because it is impossible. Right? So he says, I believe the Son of God died. Um, it's credible because it's unfitting. I believe he was buried and rose again. I am certain because it is impossible. So like, Fantastic, right? You see a certain dialectic in there, and at first, um, it's very hard to make any sense of what Tertullian is talking about. Um, now, without getting too far into Tertullian, you can actually read about it on Wikipedia. I was actually looking it up today because I don't know much about the history of how the phrase changed, and Wikipedia kind of goes through it all. So, you know, if you're interested, have a look at that. But I do know that um, Tertullian was probably referencing the philosopher Aristotle, who made the claim that basically if someone very rational, seemingly intelligent, makes a crazy claim, uh, you should be more likely to give it credibility. You should kind of listen to it. You should interrogate it. You shouldn't just kind of uh, uh, just dismiss it out of hand. And Aristotle is basically saying that it's because why would someone who is sane and rational make an absurd claim, right? Make, make some ridiculously outlandish claim, um, you know, so maybe they're right because it's actually, you know, they're going to look like a fool. They should keep their mouth shut. Um, now, of course, that's kind of a bit of a crazy thing to think, right? People do make outlandish claims and some people suffer from, you know, paranoia or whatever, right? They have hallucinations. We make mistakes all the time. But it is interesting that Aristotle was like, no, if someone makes a seemingly crazy claim, that, that makes me lean in and go, right, tell me more. And so Tertullian might be playing with that and going, well, the most extreme claim is that the infinite <clears throat> can become finite, that the that the, the eternal can die, 
right? That the, you know, that which cannot die, dies. Like that's, that's the most outlandish claim you can ever make and then rise again, right? So there's something about the crucifixion and resurrection that is so outlandish, like it's the most crazy thing you could imagine. And yet <clears throat> reasonable, rational people make the claim. And so Tertullian is saying, yeah, that I believe it. Like why else would this, uh, would this kind of belief float around? Now, that's, uh, that's the complete opposite, really, of what uh, David Hume said. Uh, David Hume, uh, you can probably make these reconcile to some extent, but David Hume said, uh, the more outlandish a claim, the more evidence you need for it. So if I say to you, like I'm coming around to your house and I'm late and you open the door and I say, I'm sorry I'm late, but I almost got hit by a car, uh, you're more likely to believe me because there's lots of cars around, uh, that happens. But if I say, sorry, I'm late, I almost got eaten by a crocodile, you would be within your rights to ask for more evidence because you've never seen a crocodile in your area, right? So it's a more outlandish claim. So Hume is saying, the more outlandish the claim, the more evidence you need. And uh, Aristotle is not disagreeing with Hume, he's just saying something different, which is the, most out the more outlandish the claim, the more you should take it seriously. Uh, so that's why I'm saying they're not irreconcilable, but, um, but Tertullian basically, for whatever reason, is trying to say that the, the insanity of the claim actually lends credibility to it, and more than credibility. I mean, he even uses the, the word certitude. I'm certain because it's impossible. Okay, so that's, that's where the phrase comes from. Um, it's, it's changed and developed over time. So as it's translated by different thinkers and as different people interpret it and read it, it becomes not I, I'm certain because it's impossible or um, uh, it is uh, credible because it is unfitting. Unfitting, I suppose, is a way of saying like if a king lives in a hut, it's unfitting, right? Why would a king live in a hut and not a palace? It's unfitting for God to be born in a manger or to die on a cross, right? So uh, some people took that and they condensed it down to the phrase, I believe, because it's absurd. Um, now, throughout the history of thought, basically everybody would uh, uh, reject that, okay, right? So on one side, you have people who say, I believe in Christianity because it's not absurd, right? The apologists, people like William Lee and Craig and others, anybody who's like a, a confessional Christian apologist is precisely trying to argue that their position is not absurd and therefore there is credibility to it. Uh, even someone like Richard Swinburne, who's a, an analytic philosopher, the whole of his work is designed to say that Christianity is um, both possible and even probable. Then on the other side, you have people who say, I don't believe because it's absurd, right? And then you have like a lot of what would be called the new atheists and some of the intellectual dark web, uh, people like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins who precisely say that Christianity uh, and religion is absurd and that's precisely the reason not to believe. And those two camps love to talk, right? They love to talk because they both agree on something. They both agree that um, if something's absurd, it should be rejected. They just disagree about religion. But this phrase um, that's kind of like arises out of Tertullian and it takes on a life of its own, um, it's saying something far more 
kind of interesting, potentially nonsensical, but like very, uh, you know, it, it, it gets your interest, which is, I believe, because it's absurd. Um, and I like the phrase, and so I was going to use that phrase, and I thought there's something about it that's not quite right. I, don't, I think there's a way to kind of tighten it, and so I decided to go for faithing the absurd. Uh, uh, absurdo confido, either I believe um, I have faith in the absurd or faithing the absurd. And I'll explain why I went for that word in a second. But um, in order to understand this notion of the absurd, we've talked about it before, but I just want to cover it again briefly, is the greatest philosopher of the absurd in the modern period is uh, Camus. Uh, well, Soren Kierkegaard and then Camus. And so Camus gives a very precise definition of the absurd. Camus says that a meaning-desiring being confronting a universe that resists giving meaning, uh, which either does has no meaning or resists giving meaning, results in an experience of the absurd. So the absurd is not that the universe has no meaning, and the absurd is not that we desire meaning. The absurd is that there's a clash between the two. So there's no absurd reality for a rock or a dog or a tortoise, right? Um, and there would be no absurdity if the universe gave us meaning, right? And we are meaning desiring beings and we, we find meaning. The absurd arises through the clash of these two things. Uh, and then Camus' work is largely focused uh, on how do we live in the absurd? And how do we not only live in the absurd, how do we embrace that? How do we find enjoyment within that absurd space? Now, Freud has a similar kind of thing going on that we've already looked at, uh, if you remember, between the pleasure principle and the reality principle, right? The reality principle is stopping us from doing what we want, right? So we're, we often hit uh, uh, barriers and obstacles in our lives. And the pleasure principle is what makes us want things. And so there would be no clash if, again, we were just a type of animal that bounces against something and then moves on. So, for example, if you're walking a dog and a dog really wants to go in a certain direction, most of the time, if you tug the lead, eventually the dog will go, right, okay, and will walk with you, right? So there's no absurdity there. Um, the reality principle is the lead being pulled. Uh, the dog kind of wants to go the other direction, but when the dog realizes uh, he or she can't go that direction, they go the other direction. Um, there's actually was an experiment done, supposedly. Uh, um, I think uh, Lacan references this, or a guy, Jacqueline Milner, I can't remember, but the experiment is where they put some mice in a cage, and they put some uh, really nice food that the mice would really like behind a glass sheet. And then they put kind of some like less good food that was easily reachable. And what happened is the mice tried to get the really good food, right? They bounced against the glass. Eventually they realized they couldn't get the good food. And so they went and ate the kind of the stuff that was readily available, right? So nothing too unsurprising there, right? But then, supposedly, the scientists, the scientists do, they took the little mice and they played around with some part of their brain and then they put them back in the cage. And what happened is these mice now were bouncing against the glass to get the good food. Only this time, they didn't stop. 
they didn't renounce their desire. They didn't, they didn't uh, give way to the reality principle. They kept trying to get the good food, supposedly until they died, right? They wouldn't renounce it and get the other food. Uh, so what happened is they basically made zombie mice, right? Because a zombie is just goes for human flesh or brains. Uh, and no matter what happens, you can shoot them, you can cut them to pieces, but as long as there's life in them, they will not renounce that desire for flesh. Uh, you also see it in the alien films, where the alien is this unrelenting creature that cannot be put off. It has this categorical imperative to destroy. Um, so in a way, that what they did is they made little humans out of us. Because that's the thing about the zombie. The zombie is a reflection of something within ourselves. I mean, I think that's why zombie films are so enduring, is because they speak of a very human thing, right? So the funny thing about a zombie is how much they reflect a very singularly human attribute, which is a type of categorical imperative, a type of not renouncing something and just dying um, in the pursuit of it. Uh, so in The Walking Dead, when I used to watch it a long time ago, uh, the thing that I liked about it was that you didn't become a zombie if you were bitten by a zombie. Uh, in The Walking Dead, uh, everybody already had the zombie virus in them. And when you died, you became a full zombie. So that kind of like shows more of the truth of what a zombie is. A zombie is us, we are zombies. Um, and so we're like a dog who will not eventually renounce the, the being pulled by the lead. We'll just continue going that direction and we'll die for it. And we, we all know that dimension within ourselves, even if we don't live into it. We all know that dimension where we can get so caught up in something that we would rather die than renounce it. You even see this with kids if they're not eating their vegetables and you're telling them to eat their vegetables and then you say you're going to sit there and not get up from the dinner table until you eat your vegetables and they just don't move you know it's like they sit there until you eventually i guess have to <laughs> recant right it's that that element of like beyond the what freud called beyond of the pleasure principle so when the reality principle and the pleasure principle clash for humans <clears throat> and say other animals don't seem to have this right uh um when these clash, we have this excessive drive, and that's a kind of absurdity within the within uh, subjectivity. Um, and again, it's not about the absurd being on one side or the other side, and the reality principle or the pleasure principle. The absurd is in the clash between the two. And similar to Camus, Freud is about how do we live in that kind of clash. Uh, a living which can often be suffering because what happens is, as I've talked about before, the more that something is uh, taken away, the more an obstacle is given to you on some things, the more it can generate this excessive desire. So a surplus pleasure comes out. So it's not just the pleasure of having a certain toy. The toy takes on the surplus pleasure, like the surplus kind of, uh, it becomes a sacred object. So if you have a kid who's playing with a toy, and then you just take the toy away and you lock it away and say, you can't play with that anymore. The kid might, you know, they might just be bored and walk off. But another thing that can happen is that toy can start to take on even more value. It's not just a toy car. It's suddenly kind of like the toy that they really, really want. 
a friend of mine collects toys and he collects like Star Wars figures and this kind of thing, Batman figures, and he'll keep some of the good ones in their boxes. And he has a kid and I suppose there's one, I think it's a Batman figure that's in pristine condition in its box. And of course his kid just so wants to play with that toy. And I'm like, this is the terrible thing, right? You've got it high up on the shelf. You've told him you can't have that. You can have every other toy and there's hundreds of toys, right? Of course, what toy does he want? He wants that one. <laughs> um, and uh, of course, it would be disappointing if he ever played with it. But while he doesn't have it, it creates this surplus value. So that can be very, very painful for us. And we've already covered a lot of reasons for that. So that's kind of the absurd. Living in that space and Camus' work and Freud's work and Kierkegaard's work that we're going to come to is about how do we not get rid of the absurd, not not find a way outside of it, but rather to find a way to live within it. And so for Kierkegaard and for Camus and for Freud, there is no getting out of it. Uh, I think I talked about the difference between there's religions of nihilism and religions of hedonism, which both promise ways of getting out of the absurd. Religions of hedonism, they basically say you can have what you want. You can have the toy in its box, open it up, and it will give you all the satisfaction that you think it will. Or you've got religions of nihilism that say, no, you have to get rid of your desire, right? The only way to get out of this absurdity is to completely flatline your desire. Uh, but then, of course, that falls into contradictions because you have to desire to get rid of your desire. So that's already a desire to get rid of your desire. Um, so we need a religion of the absurd. And Camus and Freud and Kierkegaard in different ways express this, but Kierkegaard does it in the most obviously religious sense because he's a religious philosopher. Um, the founder of existentialism really, um, which, is, which is really interesting. Um, if you could say there's any Christian philosophy as in any philosophy that was built out of a reading of the biblical text, existentialism would be the kind of one that uh, would come to mind because um, uh, Kierkegaard really kind of built it through a reading of Abraham and Isaac. So anyway, this um, absurdo confido uh, is, a, is a phrase that somehow we have faith in the absurd. We don't try to escape it. We don't try to run from it. We don't run into religions of hedonism. We don't run into religions of nihilism. But there is a way to affirm the chaos and the, um, the dialectic. And by the way, this affirming of the dialectic, what I've been trying to show is that when we can embrace this chaos, this absurdity, it not only transforms our lives personally, right? So we find a better way to live in our personal lives. It also transforms how we interact socially. So you can build a politics on the, of the absurd and it connects with the very nature of reality. Right? It's something that's hard-baked into reality. And so in a, in a religious sense, in a theological sense, you can say that, that this is the very heart of God, that chaos is in the very heart of reality or in the very heart of the divine. And in finding a place for that within ourselves, we find ourselves flowing with that dimension of reality. Okay. Um, now, I didn't go with this idea of, I believe, because it's absurd for two, two reasons, I think, stopped me from, from using that phrase. And one, basically, is because of the word belief. Uh, because I think that the belief refers to the cognitive, 
right? When you talk about belief, you're generally think more about um, the rational. It's a way of thinking. Now, it's not always that. I can say that I believe in you. And uh, so there is a dimension of believing in something that isn't cognitive. But I think that when we think of that word, we primarily think of a set of beliefs, a set of statements. And I didn't want to think that that pyrotheology or this kind of this uh, notion of the cure is a cognitive thing. It's something that is what could be called a gestalt. It, um, it involves all of us. It's more of a, a dimension of our will. Uh, it's something that catches, touches all parts of ourselves. It's not just a cognitive thing. So I was like, no, I'm not, not a huge fan of the word belief. And then the second reason is because belief also um, tends towards what Immanuel Kant called understanding. So Kant distinguished between reason and understanding. And he said reason, which is pure thought, brings us into contradictions. Right? But he says understanding is much more humble. Understanding attempts to, it keeps itself in the range of the empirical of our everyday lives and it makes sense of the world. So it's kind of about rejecting contradiction. And it's thinking belief is generally again thought of as a type of finding meaning right you believe in something because it makes sense not because it's absurd so if you're late again to come around to my house and you give me a reason for it and the reason is sensible and rational i might say oh i believe you that's fine i believe you but if you say something completely crazy i might say i don't believe you that sounds too much so or even if i look at the world and I think that the world is a chaos, but, but I say, I believe it's not. I believe there is meaning behind everything. That's a way of saying that beneath all of the chaos, I think there is a, a kind of something that holds it all together that is kind of one. Um, so that was the second reason that belief I kind of wasn't that comfortable with. I was much more comfortable with the word faith because faith is something that immediately people think of as involving all of us. When we have faith in somebody, it's not about belief as such, it's about having faith, it's about, it's about being caught up in something. Um, and then secondly, uh, for Kierkegaard, um, his understanding of faith is intimately tied up with the notion of the absurd. I mean, so much so that you didn't, don't even have to put the two words together. Like, like faith is a type of living in the absurd. Um, so I'm gonna like just talk a little bit about that. But before I do, I'll just mention also a book by Paul Hessert um, called Christ in the End of Meaning. And that's also an amazing book on faith and faith in the absurd. So I've done a book study on it. You can find that on my website as well if you're interested, but that's a really interesting book. But we're gonna look at Kierkegaard. Now Kierkegaard is a difficult writer and he's difficult partly because He's, he, it's hard to work out what he thinks, right? He writes under pseudonyms. He writes uh, books under different names and he often has different figures contradicting each other. And it becomes obvious that Kierkegaard is less interested in getting you to believe a certain thing than think for yourself, right? Than kind of like do the difficult work of taking responsibility for your own life, making decisions in fear and trembling. Um, living with passion, right? So these are very Kierkegaardian themes. And this is really interestingly expressed in a short book, but a difficult book called Fear and Trembling. And Fear and Trembling 
is a reflection on Abraham, right? And Abraham is known as the father of faith. And I'm going to give you an interpretation of fear and trembling, what I think Kierkegaard is doing. Um, and I, you know, I think this is, I think this is a good way to look at it, but uh, uh, I'm sure a Kierkegaard scholar might be, might kind of want to pick up on a few things that I'm saying, but I think this is what's going on in his work. Um, I did hear a Kierkegaard thinker, a scholar talk like this as well. I can't remember her name. It was on a podcast, but the, the, the way of understanding what Kierkegaard is doing is to, first of all, realize like the book starts off with, um, uh, with Kierkegaard reflecting on the idea of Abraham killing his son, right? So it starts off there, going like, right, Abraham's going to kill his son. And Kierkegaard's going like, this is a story we tell in church. This is a story that Christians love, right? And Abraham is held up as a hero, like as someone we have to exemplify, right? We should live like Abraham does. Why? Because Abraham is the father of faith, right? If we want to understand what faith is, Abraham is the figure, and Kierkegaard, in his typical style, wants to kind of like uh, really mess with the reader who he's, you know, a lot of people who are reading this would consider themselves Christians in his age. And so he wants them to read this book and be freaked out by that idea that we should live like Abraham does. And so what Kierkegaard does is, of course, he just points out that this is a guy who's going to kill his kid, who hears a voice and goes up a mountain to literally sacrifice his child. And he's going like, why would you emulate that? Like if anybody, a preacher, I think he even says, it's like if a preacher preached about Abraham and Isaac and you know, said at the front of the church that we should emulate that life, right? And then immediately after the service, you went up to that pastor and you said, pastor, I believe God is telling me to kill my child the pastor would immediately say, you're crazy, you're mad, like you cannot do that, and would uh, report you, right? So Kierkegaard points this out. He's like, yeah, on the pulpit, you're saying like, oh, we emulate the life of Abraham, but if anybody in the church actually did it, we would rightly report them. Um, and then, so a lot of it's about, and then a lot of it also is about getting into the mind of Abraham of the, the, the struggle of that, right? It's not just he's easily walking up the mountain, like he's walking up the mountain thinking about killing his kid, right? Walking for days with this on his mind. And you start to feel more and more the craziness of the story. Now, Kierkegaard, again, is not doing that so that you go, okay, the story's crazy, let's forget it, right? He's precisely doing something much more uh, annoying and difficult, which is to say, no, he is the father of faith. Right? So either like the two extremes are Abraham is the father of faith, but we domesticate it so much. And there's a variety of theologians who have tried to do that. Who give, give reasons and interpretations that basically take all of, the, all of the violence out of the story. Or on the other side, people who go, no, it's a crazy story and you should reject it. Again, you see that Kierkegaard is doing something similar to this, I believe, because it's absurd. He's going, it's absurd. What's going on is crazy, and this is precisely why Abraham is the father of faith. Um, now, while the phrase uh, credo quia absurdum is nowhere in the book, um, it's kind of everywhere. It's everywhere in, in fear and trembling. So what is it about Abraham that makes him the father of faith? Uh, in a nutshell, you could say that it is 
the fact that Abraham is able to simultaneously hold two completely opposed positions. And the two opposed positions are like two approaches to God, really, right? There's God of natural theology, which is the God who um, expresses God's self through the, the universe, right? The idea on through ethics and through laws. So if you say, like, I should kill my friend or my child, uh, you might say, no, that's completely against the natural order. Or if you're religious, you might say that's completely against God's order, right? So there's that. And then there is the notion of God as the exception, right? God is being able to make demands that, that counter everything that we know and experience in the world. And Abraham kind of experiences the contradiction between these two things. He fully feels it. And Kierkegaard says, right, what makes Abraham the father of faith is he's able to both fully accept that he's going to kill his son and fully believe that he's not going to kill his son, right? So he is the father of superpositioning. He is the father of quantum mechanics. If, uh, you know, if, if physicists had a, a patron saint, their patron saint should be Abraham, right? Because Abraham is <clears throat> a version of Stroganer's cat, right? Somehow... Adam or Abraham is able to fully acknowledge the loss and fully believe in the non-loss. And he's not, and so and Kierkegaard has this verb, he calls him a knight of faith, right? But before the knight of faith, you have what are called the knights of the infinite resignation. And the knight of infinite resignation, they can give everything up, but they don't believe they'll get it all back. So they crush the contradiction into one side. And I guess there's people who crush it into the other side, right? Um, but if you think of like Star Wars and the, um, the trash compactor, right? Of these two opposites and someone who is basically f- keeping these two things apart. That's Abraham. He's somehow the knight of faith, able to embrace both of these things and keep them within himself. And so for Kierkegaard, faith is the absurd. It's the, a fully living infidelity to this not at oneness of the world, to this kind of contradiction that is at the heart of everything. And that is a type of analogy for, um, you know, things like uh, evolution, right, uh, in biology or, or superpositioning in quantum mechanics or uh, incompleteness within mathematics, right? The, uh, for, for Kierkegaard and for Immanuel Kant, actually, our, our freedom even as people is the very fact that we're not at one with ourselves. We are short-circuited. Um, there, is, there is a type of not, there's a type of short circuit in reality and that's why we're free because uh, there's a type of um, not at oneness within hard baked into the universe, a type of chaos. And Abraham is able to acknowledge that not intellectually not as a belief but rather as a way of being in the world Uh, and that's why he's the father of faith and that's what we need to emulate so that's why i chose the term absurdo confido um faith and faith in the absurd because in in a way everything we've been doing over these six seminars is about confronting this non-oneness of everything 
that that is what makes everything one everything is one because everything shares the fact that everything is not one everything is has chaos built within it and this is at the very heart of of theology it's the very heart of religion and it's at the very heart of science right these are not different um domains they actually are kind of animating and being moved by and uh, being fueled by the same dialectic process. Um, and then this is why, and with this I'll kind of finish up, this is why Kierkegaard says we cannot get beyond faith. There is no beyond, the highest point you can get to, you can get to faith, but you can't get beyond faith because faith is what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. Faith is the point when you realize the contradiction you embrace it, it becomes part of who you are, it becomes part of your individual life, it becomes part of your communal life, um, it, it becomes part of how you affirm life. And there is no beyond of that, because the beyond of faith would be to somehow crunch it all in. And that's not beyond faith, that's before faith. So this actually is very similar to Hegel. Uh, we haven't done much Hegel in this course, that doesn't matter, but Kierkegaard defines himself against Hegel, but actually this is this is very similar to what Hegel is doing. Um, and so the whole journey of paro-theology, and the claim is the whole journey of faith, is a journey into that. And I started this whole course by talking about the magic trick, the pledge, the sacred object, the turn, the disappearance of that sacred object, and the prestige, the return of that sacred, not as an object, but as the depth dimension in objects, as we love, as we look after each other. And I don't know if I mentioned, but I just want to bring it round to the Eucharist, the Eucharistic meal, which is a form of the magic trick. You have the bread and the wine, which is the sacred object, that's God, right? So there's God as an object right before you that you can reach out and touch. Then there is the turn, which is the disappearance of the sacred object. You consume the bread and the wine. And in the Anglican tradition, I think the Catholic tradition as well, all of it is consumed. None of it remains. So the, the, the priest, you know, drinks the last of the wine, eats the rest of the bread, so there is nothing left. So the sacred object is completely gone. And then we wait for the prestige. And you're sitting there back in the pew, trying to look holy, kind of going, what do you do now? All right, waiting until you can go off. And then at the end, you get up and you start talking to people. And uh, someone's lost their job and you ask about it and you say, listen, I've got a friend, might be able to help you out. Let me make a couple of calls. Someone else about to have a kid. You're like, listen, I must be really difficult. You're on your own. Uh, I'm going to kind of make you meals. Come around. I know you've got another kid. Let me do some babysitting for you while you rest. And as you are doing this in community, this is the prestige. Right? Not even what you realize is the prestige, it's happening behind your back, right? But that action, you are the sacred, um, or you are participating in the sacred in uh, loving one another and looking out for one another. And this whole journey can seem depressing, right? On a, in one version of it, you go like, all right, so we have to give up this pursuit uh, of something that will make us whole and complete, and we have to embrace kind of like eternal struggle and not getting. When you put it like that, it sounds terrible. <laughs> but whenever you understand that, no, it's the pursuit of what will make us whole and complete that makes us feel incomplete, which makes us feel um, dissatisfied. 
And actually in letting go of that, um, we can then enter into a new form of satisfaction, a new form of confidence that comes from embracing the struggle itself. And that as we do that, we find ourselves uh, in tune with the very nature of reality. We find ourselves in tune with the very nature of the self-divided, self-alienating God. Okay, just gonna to look to see if there are any questions. Oh yeah, Tim says, my dad thinks Trump's presidency is divinely legitimate because his election was impossible. How Tertullian. That is interesting, actually. That's a, that's a good example that um, I didn't think, think yeah, that's, that's kind of like, a, there is something uh, very interesting about it. when something really impossible happens. That's a good example of how you can believe in it even more because you go like, it was so, it was so uh, uh, incredible. Uh, Rob says, in your view, does faith in the absurd logically conclude in a type of atheism that there is no God and we are alone in the universe or is the divine itself absurd or is it both? Yeah, Rob, that's a great question. And what I was kind of like kind of hinting at at the end of this is that I think either one um, is legitimate. Now, so when I first set up ICON, this is before I'd worked all of this stuff. I was kind of in the midst of thinking things through, whatever, but we set up ICON. And at that time, ICON, one of the things that was conscious in my mind is that, because I was reading Derrida and I was reading John McMarion. And Derrida is this type of, you know, atheistic philosopher and Marion is type of theistic philosopher. But both of them are open to the impossible. Right, so they're both philosophers of the impossible in a way. So Derrida is like, there is something to come. There is something that we can't understand because the universe is inherently open. And then Marion is, there is something about the universe that we cannot grasp because the impossible is dwells with, with us. So we either basically you're a mystic or you're kind of like a, this kind of like materialist type of Der Derridean. And Icon was like going like, it's got, the place for both of those. As long as you are open to the kind of openness to the future and, and doubt, ambiguity and complexity, you're going to find a welcome there. And maybe both sides will think that icon is what reflects them, but it says icon is friendly to both. And in the same way, in answer to your question, I think it's very easy. And Hegel himself is a good example of this is, you know, Hegel seems to see this as the divine life that what he's doing is not atheistic. He's a Lutheran, goes to church every week, you know, and all he sees himself doing is um, helping to make philosophical sense of what he hears every Sunday in church. That he is kind of, I mean, it sounds crazy when you say it, like laying bare the divine mind. But it's not like Hegel thinks that we can understand God entirely, but he does think, it goes like, no, there's this revelation within the church, and all I'm doing is giving a philosophical kind of like reflection of that. Or you could be like someone like Shizak who very much sees Hegel as in no way like explaining the divine mind, but seeing Hegel as revealing the truth of the, the nature of reality, that there is a type of oscillation, a vibration within the very quantum level of reality that, that causes everything to exist. 
And I kind of want to say that both of those are I think, reasonable positions. And the fact that you said in your question, or is it both? I go like, yeah, there's, there's a certain way in which they can look interchangeable and we can be interchangeable between them. Sometimes we can think that, um, that there's nothing but this chaos. And sometimes we might think that this chaos is the very heart of God. Um, but either way, I think it looks the same. So yeah, in answer to your question, great question. I think you can be, I don't think it leads to some sort of um, uh, atheism in the traditional sense. Uh, I think it leads you to a form of, what someone like Richard Carney would write as A-stroke theism. And um, I used to do that as well. So you like the A-stroke theism. So it's kind of atheism and theism. It's like God is nowhere, God is now here. It's kind of like a, it's, it's occupying a space that, that doesn't fit neatly into, into that binary. All right. Thank you so much for, for, for doing this. If you're watching this live, then next week we'll just, we're going to do a Zoom interaction where this is just a chance for you to reflect on stuff and we can like, kind of address any questions that you have. But uh, apart from that, thank you so much for doing the course. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.